folks, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, the podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we are pouring out the sake for a whole bunch of dead homies, which I guess means that today we're talking about Kurosawa's classic tale of blood feuds and revenge, Yojimbo. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and then we try to make our case. Last week, Adam chose Yojimbo, so in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask him to defend his pick. Why does this movie matter for the work of the church? And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Yojimbo for the lectionary week ahead, which will be Year C, May 22nd, Trinity Sunday. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following or reading. So before we begin, Matt, we have a little bit of business to attend to, and we are going to make a special announcement We have known from the beginning that we wanted to have guests on this show, and after a while, I think we're getting a little predictable. Matt talks about the book of Revelation. I constantly veer towards nihilism. Well, I think we're now in a position to start inviting guests, and next next week's episode will feature our first guest. We have invited Eric Barreto to be our inaugural guest. Eric is a New Testament scholar and has been teaching at Luther Seminary in Minneapolis, and starting in the fall, he'll be moving to the Garden State where he'll be a professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. When I first met Eric, we bonded over our mutual love for the Fast and the Furious movies, so I know he'll make a good guess. Finally, make sure you stick around to the end of the podcast, where Eric will announce what movie we'll be watching next week. Okay, announcement over. So let me tell you my story. The year is 1996. I think I was at the Mall of America in Minneapolis, and I don't know why I think that's true. (laughs) And I wandered into the theater, and I watched this terrible B-action movie about a drifter. The drifter, he comes into this border town, and in the border town, there are these two rival gangs in this uneasy truce, and he decides he's going to light a powder keg between them. He's going to play one gang against the other gang. He's going to clean up in the process. Towards the end of the movie, he gets beaten down really bad, but then he comes back and executes his vengeance. It was gritty and dark and bitter, but at least it had Bruce Willis in it. (laughs) The movie I'm talking about, of course, is the totally forgotten, except by me, 1996 cult not classic Last Man Standing. I guess my question for you, Adam, is why doesn't Yojimbo have Bruce Willis in it? I mean, and my point is really that this... (laughs) This movie is kind of a trope, right? I mean, it was made as Fistful of Dollars by Sergio Leone in 64. It was Eastwood's big debut. And of course, it was made as the film that we watched for this week, Kurosawa's 61 take on this tale of blood feud and vengeance, something like a take on the American Western. It's the same movie and the same grit and the same darkness, just no Bruce Willis. So why should I care? Adam, justify my faith. Well, I might agree with you that adding Bruce Willis makes just about anything better. But let me give you my two reasons for believing that this movie might matter for the church. The first is, I think Kurosawa as a filmmaker 
is amazing in his ability to refract the West through the East. And so you see in movie after movie, uh, so The Throne of Blood by Kurosawa is a take on Macbeth. Uh, Ran is a take on Lear. Yojimbo is in some ways a take on the American Western. Even Rashomon is in some ways born of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, where you have the various different perspectives being told by different people. What Kurosawa was able to do is gather things in the story that we don't generally see from our vantage as people who have inherited these stories. Because I own it, I actually don't know all that much about it. So in the case of Yojimbo, we see a movie that is about honor. Now, Westerns are also about honor, but we rarely talk about them as such. And so Kurosawa opens this piece up to us a little bit. He opens up the ways in which the code that we follow, the authority that we submit to, is also culturally bound. Moreover, I think we get a very good sense of what Kurosawa thinks about the authorities of his own post-war world here in this movie, where he seems absolutely fed up with uh, the, the politicians and the law enforcement and the army. And so questions of what constitutes a proper authority in our world become so important for this initial frontier narrative. Who gets to rule? What laws matter? Kurosawa channels those questions through his own conflicted stories. And I think that those questions um, matter for church ministry. And they're, and they're often ignored. Who gets to rule? Who gets to say what matters? Who gets to uh, define the orthodoxy? Who gets to tell the narrative? What authority are you going to follow to begin with? All of these, I think, are really valuable uh, questions that the church should be asking. The second reason that I think this matters for the church is because more than maybe any of the other films that we've watched, Yojimbo feels biblical to me. It's not a dogmatic movie. It doesn't leave you with some sort of moral feeling. A whole bunch of people die for what seems to be very little. A few good people live, and then the town gets to start over. And so I was, as I was watching this movie, uh, the old slave spiritual came to my mind. And it's the spiritual that, that gave uh, the title to James Baldwin's uh, letter to his nephew, The Fire Next Time. And the spiritual goes like this. It says, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, a fire next time. And as I watched this, I realized that the type of experience that bore a spiritual that longs for fire and a, um, a movie that has a complex vision of justice and how justice comes into the world uh, aren't just born of a cultural experience. They're also very biblical. I was talking to a friend about uh, our podcast, and I told him that we were going to watch this movie. And uh, he's a professor of Old Testament here. And he said, oh, yeah, that movie, uh, it's the Abimelech story in Judges. And I said, uh, I don't really know what the Abimelech story is. Um, and he said, the basic idea is that there are these two warring nations, and they keep warring against each other, and by the end, they're both dead. And he said, the difference is, in the Abimelech story, it's the spirit of God that is the stranger. 
that is the catalyst that causes death that ultimately um, will make life palatable for Israel, at least in the Abimelech story, and in this, some other new town that's going to move in. And as I watched this movie, I realized, you know, religion is a very complex thing. Um, the Bible is a very complex thing. And as I live in the secular liberal church of the North, I realized they don't particularly like the Bible here. They mostly tolerate it because they see it having some helpful principles for living. And they think that it might help them be better moral human beings. That it witnesses to the revelation of God or the presence of evil or just the wild vagaries of life spent toiling between good and evil. These are very little concern to many churches in my context. And yet the Bible is mostly a book of people groping after God. They're trying to be faithful, trying to live by an authority, a code, and they can't do it. And they keep trying and they fail and they try again and they grope after the codes that will center their life and justify their decisions and ennoble their action. And they try and they try and they fail. And I think that's similar to what's happening in this story that Kurosawa is telling. And it might seem sad or nihilistic or even just... Um, petty, but it's still biblical. So that's what I was thinking, Matt. As you watched Yojimbo, what about it stood out to you? Well, I have a couple of different responses and thoughts and strains that come off of the couple of big points that you made. I feel the nihilism here and i feel it coming from you too i mean in some ways i feel like the closest conversation parallel we've had in our conversations has been chinatown and it's that sense of strife and toil that may or may not actually ever get you anywhere though i think there's probably a sound argument to be made that the end of this film is somewhat more optimistic than we get at the end of chinatown at least yeah. this at least this town kind of gets to move on somewhere I think maybe if we're going to play to form, you talk about nihilism and I can talk about revelation. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> right. I, I do think that that you're right to find the, the Noah story and the Abimelech story. And, and I would argue that there's a kind of revelation purge here going on too, where you have the um, the spirit of fire or the spirit of something like chaos that you have this instigative figure who lights a match underneath this powder keg of a town and then we are asked to we are asked to ask some moral questions about whether or not that that instigation is as you say an honorable thing especially in light in in light of the the moment in this movie that I find most interesting is that point where there's a seeming truce mm -hmm. and peace comes and the right. stranger says the peace is the most dangerous thing yeah, and the peace is unprofitable. The peace doesn't work for all kinds of different people. The peace doesn't work for the hired hands. The peace, because it, it causes them economic and existential threat, right? They don't, they don't know who to be if they're not hired thugs. And so the whole thing just feels uh, impossible. I, I do kind of want to... I want to hear a little bit more from you, though, about honor. I, I think that it's a big statement from you to say that the American Western is about honor, even though we don't really talk about it as such. 
uh, and and I, I, I want you to unpack that a bit, because as I think about the American Western, and there's no question to me that this movie is playing in that sandbox a bit, but the American Western is also negotiating questions about frontier and colonialism and colonization that, and, and about land that are not really at play here and wouldn't be because of the dr- drastic cultural differences between Japan and the American project. And it seems to me that in the American West, where you would point to honor, I might very regularly point to a kind of performed masculinity that I think is tied in with all kinds of American pathologies that may not be quite the same place here. So I, I want us to unpack that a little bit before we rest too much of our argument on it. Right. So I, when, I, when I talk about honor, I'm thinking that Kurosawa is saying that each frontier each place has its own authority that it has to contend with. And in his context, the role of honor becomes very important. Uh, so the, the stranger is a man without honor on the one hand. He's a ronin. He's a samurai without a master. And yet he is still beholden to this larger vision of what it counts to be um, honorable. He, he can't just play everyone for profit. At some point, he, he has to contend with honor. I think similarly in the American West, uh, it's doing something similar with the fact that cowboys, law and order, it, it also is a code that someone has to live by. It's an authority that they have to contend with as, uh, or even a sieve through which uh, questions of moral and ethical action are, um, are put in order to try and figure out what does it mean to live in a place where law and order are not a given, where honor is not a given, where our authority structures are in constant question. And I think that Kurosawa, by using honor as the primary lens, as opposed to say something like law and order or, um, or even something like violence as, as you get in the later Westerns of Eastwood and others, uh, that those questions take on new refracted light. I mean, so I watched this movie largely thinking about church conflict. Uh, It was impossible for me to watch this guy come into a town and have these two warring factions going at each other without thinking about Mifune as like the worst interim pastor that I could ever imagine. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about denominations in this too. Right. Right. Sure. And, and because what you're calling honor here, I mean, in our church conflict, at least in, in the Presbyterian church, we have very specific language that identifies for us the authority of Jesus Christ, which I believe theologically, but it's very hard to pin down when you get into questions of actual church decision making. I mean, what does it mean for a group of people to discern the authority of Jesus Christ when they have two very strong opinions about what that might be? The, you know, the my denomination, the PCUSA, is a house divided against itself right now, and it has been for a generation over questions of sexuality and morality. And a couple of years ago, we finally amended our constitution to allow for the uh, clergy to perform um, marriages of GLBT couples, and that kind of strips out the last vestiges of GLBTQ discriminatory language in our constitution. But 
This summer, as our denomination gathers again, we have on our docket something called Overture 50, which is uh, an apology to LGBTQ communities for, a gener for generations of discrimination against them. And this apology has become incredibly divisive because the language that we amended our Constitution to say, it, it now allows for multiple perspectives. So the Constitution itself does not, at this point, provide an authoritative answer. It allows for churches to coexist in, in the same towns or communities or whatever with different perspectives on those theologies of sexuality. So right now, the denomination is holding itself together, but very, very loosely. I mean, in the sense that these two warring clans are living in the same town successfully at the beginning of the film, but not necessarily honorably. So the division around this overture is, to me, it seems like the division that sits at the very opening of this film, the question of like, do you let this town sit peacefully and uninterrupted, or do you just burn it to the ground? Because if the overture passes... In some ways, yes, it's a strike for justice. I do believe that the apology is honorably intended, but it also has the consequence, potentially, of destroying a lot of the goodwill that has been carefully worked for. I, I, so I, I, that's where I went with this, was kind of how do churches, what does it mean to be a church of reconciliation in a world that so wants to kind of push these, push these groups up against each other over and over again? Right. And I think what Kurosawa is doing here is also showing that there are real consequences to these value statements, too, that um, that you endanger yourself any number of different ways, depending on whether you only seek the ends of your own self-interest, where you're the only authority for your life. Um, Kurosawa is saying that's a dangerous place to stand. Similarly, he's saying when you are beholden to some outside authority of yourself, that also, too, is a dangerous place to stand because you might have to, you know, start to act when you see something uh, that goes against your authority. I think about this a lot in, with my students here, especially preaching students. Um, many of them have never had to contend with who or what they believe to be their authority, and many of them default almost immediately to the congregation. They say, the congregation, well, whatever it is they like or want. And so suddenly they get in this very strange, dicey relationship with just serving the congregation what they think the congregation wants, whether or not they know it is what, they want, what the congregation wants. Similarly, uh, they sort of run, their wells begin to run dry because none of what they say is authentic. It's all spoon-fed for a particular group of people who they've constructed in their own mind. And I see this happening a lot because the students don't have these complex visions of who counts as authority. And I think our churches don't either. Uh, maybe we should talk more about what it means to be... Uh, or to have the authority of Christ as, as the center of our worship. I mean, I feel like, at least in our denomination, I feel like we've talked about it a lot, but I'm not sure that we've gotten anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it feels... Um, 
in one sense, I have a deep theological stake in, in claiming that that's true and claiming that I orient myself around it and I believe that and I feel the, the kind of my spiritual heart well up when I say it. On the other hand, I don't really have a clue what it practically does except to provide kind of ex post facto justification for whatever we want in any given moment. Right. I mean, and that's... That's the same in preaching, right? Oh, sure. You say, yeah, my authority, I am beholden to the word of God. Well, what word are you talking about? And what does it look like? And what's its shape and frame and consequence? I mean, all of those questions, I think, are really vital. Um, I think the denomination is trying to work through that. And to the extent that it can, it sounds as if you're like, your decision is in some ways like, well... Maybe we should become a little bit more congregationalist. Um, but uh, at the same time, the, the problem with the congregationalist side, as someone who lives through that regularly, is uh, that it becomes increasingly harder to even have conversations about the authority that we speak to. Because it's too easy to just separate ourselves into camps, into separate churches, into houses, houses divided against itself. So let me ask you this, Adam. Do you think over the course of this film, either from your perspective or from Kurosawa's, for lack of a better phrase, do you think that the ends in this film justify the means? I mean, do you think, no. that, do you think that this world is better off for the intervention that Mufune plays in it? No, I don't. I mean, and I don't for a variety of reasons. I think this movie more than others, gets to the heart uh, that the questions of ends justifying the means is an important one. And yet, like the Bible, it's almost impossible to suss out the moral consequence of everything. We don't have the vantage. We're finite. And we can't actually see whether or not this is ultimately good because we don't know what happens next. Does another warring boss show up and just take over the town, leading to more degradation and oppression? Maybe. Probably. Uh, yeah, it feels pretty likely it, to it, me. Yeah. It, yeah, and is, uh, and all of this death that's come, the coffin maker is the one who ultimately, you know, profits, and yet he at the end seems a sort of broken soul as well. I think in in this movie. The idea is that moral consequence is is very difficult to understand and that we're left with stories where violence happens and we wonder, was it worth it? And it's really hard to answer that question. I think we can we could ask the same question in our own worlds, right? Which are, can we name the good stuff in our world without also tracing their inception back to acts of violence. So war precipitates a whole bunch of good stuff ultimately in the end after it. And yet the cost of war is so awful. Um, I think about the, um, the social movements in our country. In some ways, the civil rights movement is an act of nonviolence. And yet there were 
Black Panther movements. There were riots around this country that were influential in gaining social awareness for causes that were largely being ignored. I don't want to, on the one hand, embrace violence as a, a solution to everything, and yet I can't deny that violence in some ways does lay the groundwork for social change that's positive. And so I live in this moral gray area, which I think is where this movie leaves us. Well, I think we better give up and move on. Let's, uh, let's at least turn it over to our next segment called Preaching to the Choir. So now we're going to look at the lectionary passages for May 22nd, which is Trinity Sunday. We have a few selections on creation and the human place in it. We have Paul's letter to the Romans, where he encourages the Roman community to boast in their sufferings. And then finally, we have John's gospel about the coming of the spirit of truth. So, Adam, what I want to know is, preacher to preacher, Sunday's coming. Where does Yojimbo show up in your sermon? So I think I'd like to focus on the psalm passage because I think there's an interesting theological anthropology at the center of it. Uh, in, in the psalm passage, the psalmist cries that God made humans slightly less than God and that humans have been crowned with glory and honor. And so the psalmist holds up that one side and then says, what are humans that God is even mindful of them? And so the psalmist vacillates between seeing humans as almost gods to seeing humans as nearly insignificant when compared to God. And so connected to this theological anthropology of the psalmist is our responsibility in the midst of being almost gods and insignificant next to God. And at one point, the psalmist sings, you have, you have given dominion over the works of your hand. And so within the psalm, there's this implied responsibility to take care of these things, the, the earth, the creation, like God who takes care of humans, humans are now supposed to reflect the honor that God has bestowed upon them by taking care of the world. And so the psalmist paints a picture where our responsibility is born not of this utilitarian quid pro quo. We don't take care of the world for simply pragmatic reasons. We don't exercise stewardship simply because we want something in return. The psalmist is making the point that we exercise stewardship as an act of worship, as an outpouring of the honor and glory that God has imparted on us. And so our stewardship is this natural reaction to the created order. The power given to us as humans is designed ultimately to bring glory back to God. Now, Kurosawa loves to meditate on what it means to be honorable. We've been talking about this a little bit. And honor is a complex thing in Kurosawa's movies, and it's a complex thing in Yojimbo as well. So the stranger arrives as a ronin. He has no master, and he's in this dishonorable state. He also seems initially to want to play the town against each other for his own personal gain as well as some version of justice. And so the stranger knows that when a town has lost its honor, it becomes predictable. The interests of unchecked power, money, and control will predetermine the actions of the people. Moreover, the stranger becomes totally unpredictable to the people when he acts according to some vision of honor which is totally foreign to the people. And so Yojibo is a movie about what happens when the town has compromised its honor and therefore has lost its responsibility. Or it's made light of the responsibility and therefore has lost its honor. 
It's the natural consequence of what happens when responsibility to some higher authority is placed within human hands. What happens when our call to stewardship is always about what people buy with their tithes instead of a reaction to the grace of God? What happens when our persuasive rhetoric of why people should care for the earth is only ever in people's own self-interest? And so I think the psalmist is trying to get at who we are and what we are interested in is always in, uh, in tension with who God is and what God is interested in. And having been made by God, the psalmist is saying that we have a responsibility that may not be in our initial self-interest, but is in the interest of God. And therefore, we have a responsibility to take care of it. So that's what I'm thinking, Matt. How about you? I want to talk about the psalm too, but I want to talk about it from a little bit of a different perspective. I want to talk about cycles of violence. Pretty obviously, Yojimbo finds us kind of stuck in a cycle of violence. At one point, one of the characters says, you know, I killed those two guys who killed three of ours. And that just, it, it, it feels like it goes round and round and round. Uh, and I, I, I want to talk about that in the context of, if any, at our most optimistic reading, what kind of peacemaker Mufune may be. I mean, at the end of this film, the town is supposed to be more peaceful. He says that there will be some quiet here now, but it's, as we've already wrestled with, a, a very loaded kind of peace. In the psalm, we have this line, as Israel praises God and says that you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. That's uh, the enemy and the avenger. That's the new Marvel movie coming out this summer. Right. No, exactly. I mean, we're definitely talking about this text with the wrong movie. It should be like a like an Iron Man and Cap thing. Uh, we actually get this line repeated in multiple psalms, and it's not entirely clear to me what we're talking about. I mean, it's pretty obvious to figure out what the enemy might be, at least from Israel's perspective. They've made lots of regional political enemies. But who's the Avenger? There's a couple of options here. One is that the Avenger, that we're still talking about Israel's military enemies. So God has built the walls of Jerusalem. That's the bulwark. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes. And so it points to a cycle of political military violence. Israel has done this conquest among its ancient Near East neighbors. It has reclaimed this land, and now it risks retribution, right? So the Avengers are, and again, I can't say that without thinking about Iron Man and Cap, but the Avengers are now the, the countries who risk, who Israel risks retribution from. And by putting up the wall, God has acted as a kind of interrupter. He's the, the, the interrupter of violence. He's interrupted this cycle by making it impossible for it to be continued. Which is an interesting reading because it acknowledges Israel's sinfulness. I mean, if they're the ones who risk retribution, then they've committed some initial wrong. It's, it's kind of hard to find Yojimbo in this reading, though, in some ways, because Mufune is clearly not the interrupter. Right? He is not the one who is trying to stand in between a cycle of violence. He's the match. The other reading is, this, is to read it not as a political military history, but as God's cosmic enemies. So the enemy and the avenger here are the forces that God has kept at bay by separating the waters from the dry land. And you talked about some of that creation imagery already. So you've set your glory above the heavens. The bulwark is now the land that keeps that Genesis 1 chaos at bay into the formless void from whence it came. So that God has, by creating things, has made enemies and, ha and is holding them at bay so that God here is 
interestingly, kind of the original instigator of this cycle of violence. Right. Yeah. Um, there's actually there's actually a little bit of American Western in here, right? This idea that creation and colonization inevitably creates opposition and violent cycles, and we've already done that a little bit too. Uh, the interesting thing in both of these is that in both cases, the effect is to remove vengeance from Israel. So in neither case is the vengeance belo- does vengeance belong to the Isra- Israelites who are saying the psalm. It either belongs it belongs to God. As, as we claim multiple times in the Old Testament, that it is God who will be the one who will have this act of vengeance. I think that resonates a lot with the questions of authority and honor that we've already talked about. I think it resonates for us as we try to figure out what it means for us to be peacemakers. In this film, it's really difficult to stand down. It's not profitable. It's not existentially viable. We have two forces that are magnetically attracted towards each other. And what does it mean for us to not participate in that, but also allow God to be the one who does justice? I don't have a concrete answer, but those are the, those are the threads that I'm working through here, Adam. Right. Do so think? do you think, I mean, in the Abimelech story, the spirit of God is the spirit of vengeance. It is the one that pits the two foes against each other so that they will mutually destroy each other. And so that destruction comes and doesn't immediately come by God's raining fire down from heaven, but comes via truly human means of just warring nations. And then we put the stamp on it as God has done this. I mean, can you do the same for the Mifune character? Can you, for the stranger, for uh, Sanjuro, as they call as he calls himself? Uh, I mean, I- I, th- I think you can. I think it's harder to make the connection to this psalm through that reading, though, because Israel is not... Uh, because the, the, the Abimelech story has a little bit of narrative distance, and Israel doesn't. I mean, they're one of the characters. Right. right? They are one of the warring households right. here with their political enemies. And what I want is a reading where this psalm is really critically is allowing Israel to critically self-reflect on their own participation in this violent cycle. And I'm not sure it's actually doing that, but that's, that's what, that's, that's kind of what I want. So, from but it. I think, I mean, can we get a little bit meta on this and see is Kurosawa interested in these cycles of violence here? Is this something that you think is, is an important uh, phenomenon that he wants to take up in this movie. I think it's a very clear reality in his film, uh, and I think I think he is asking a question about how does any of this ever end? Whether or not he comes to an answer on that that we would find satisfactory and certainly not hopeful. I mean, we do have closure, but as we've said before, I have no faith that some other warlord doesn't just move in and start this over again. Uh, And whatever closure we have is at a pretty severe and substantial cost. So I I, I mean, I do think that there's a, a centrality to this question in this movie, along with the, the topics you've already talked about. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm, in the very beginning of the movie, one of the very first scenes, he throws a stick in the air to tell him where he's going to go next, right? Right. Um, it's this, it's, 
gives you a sense of who he is as a character. And yet I think Kurosawa is saying that there is this element of chance to the whole thing, that this particular Ronin shows up in this particular town. And I don't know if he's saying he was able to sow justice here, but he's only one guy. And there's only one. There's only there's only a few people in this world who even give a damn. And so while a few a few towns might be saved, that's it. Or is it just like the winds of chance bring justice where it wants and not where and not other places? I mean, I think I, I'm left with this movie trying to figure out like, did the road the other direction lead to another town like this? Did it lead to happiness or did it just lead to another town full of warring people? I definitely don't have an answer to that question, Adam. <laughs> I mean, neither do <laughs> which I. Which means I think, uh, yeah. yeah, which uh, I suspect that means we should probably move on. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I think that probably wraps it up for Yojimbo. I, I feel worse about lots of things. Uh, if you want to feel worse about lots of things, you can go check out Yojimbo too. I'm sensing it's, a theme oh, in the in the movies that I choose. <laughs> I'm sensing it I did, too. Adam. I did choose Sound uh, of Music, by the way. Can we just? No, no, it was, it was, which was great. Um, along with a lot of the Criterion Collection prints, Yojimbo is up on Hulu as well as through the Usual Suspects, but not Usual Suspects. It's not on Hulu, so don't go there. And look, that Criterion now, Collection that they have on Hulu is really good. It's fabulous. It's yeah. It's not why I subscribe to Hulu, but it definitely is the value add. So now it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? Uh, so thinking about Yojimbo, thinking about work and service and uh, helping people, I uh, was reminded of a of a poem that I quite love by the poet Shimas Heaney, who died a few years back and whose whole corpus is really wonderful if you get a chance to check it out. Um, there's one poem in particular that I want to share with us today that's called St. Kevin and the Blackbird. Uh, if you're familiar with St. Kevin, St. Kevin is the other Irish saint, and the story of St. Kevin is that he is deep in prayer one day when, uh, when he's in his hut, and his hut is too small for him to pray with his arms outstretched. So he has to put his arm out through the window. And as he's praying with his arms outstretched and his hands cupped, a blackbird lands in his hand, mistaking it for a nest and uh, lays an egg. And St. Kevin being the good saint that he is, stays in that pose until the egg uh, hatches and flies away. And so this is one of those stories of, about medieval saints that, tend to show up from time to time. And Seamus Heaney takes this to talk about um, what it means to work without, um, without hoping that what you get in return is as valuable as the work that you've put into it, but that maybe work has intrinsic value. So this is called St. Kevin and the Blackbird by Seamus Heaney. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling arms stretched out inside his cell. But the cell is narrow, so 
One turned-up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam, when a blackbird lands and lays in it and settles down to nest. Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked, neat head and claws, and finding himself linked into the eternal network of life, is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch out in the sun and rain for weeks until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin, which is he, self-forgetful or in agony all of the time. From the neck on out down through his hurting forearms? Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? Alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labor and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the riverbank, forgotten the river's name. I love that poem. That's what I got, Matt. How about you? Well, that was beautiful, Adam. Thank you so much. I want to end on a more surreal and lighthearted note. I want to talk about video games. Specifically, I want to talk about uh, SimCity. When I grew up, I, I played a, a lot of classic SimCity and a lot of like the classic SimCities, like SimCity 2000 and SimCity 3000. And I've been thinking a lot about the moral universe of SimCity. Uh, when I was growing up, when I played SimCity, it was all about balancing competing demands. Right? So you had a, you, you're building your city and you can zone different areas and you hope that people move into them and you zone residential areas and you zone commercial areas and you zone industrial areas. And you kind of connect them and they have to feed each other. And, and one of the things in SimCity is that nobody really wants industrial areas unless you're just trying to make like a polluted factory hellhole. But you have to do it <laughs> anyway, right? Because... Yeah, I love polluted factory hellholes. Right, because you have to build the factories anyway because the city needs them and because it's interconnected and otherwise people don't have goods and they don't move in. And... Uh, you get this in the later games too, where like, you know, it's, it's a hard game and you're trying to um, balance a budget that can be very challenging at times. And so I think it's SimCity 3000 where it's like, hey, you can put this state army base in your city and we'll give you some monthly budget income, but it like tanks your land values. Or you can take the prison, but it like tanks your land values, but it helps you keep your budget afloat. Put all that behind you. And now I've been playing a little bit over the last couple of weeks the game City Skylines, which is um, a, from a different company. It's not Maxis. It's by a company named Colossal Order, but it is the, the, best, the, the best inheritor of the mantle of classic SimCity. And City Skylines is amazing. It's brilliant at many, many things. It's considerably more rigorous and complicated than classic SimCity was because games are more rigorous and complicated than they used to be and it's beautiful and you can do all kinds of very intricate things but the problem with that i've been reflecting on is that it does not ask you to balance competing demands the goal seems to me to be to make a city that pleases you and not necessarily to have to make hard choices 
So, for example, I've just decided to kind of build a city that had no factories in it. And I didn't realize I was going to do this. It's just that I was building this city and it seemed to me that the people were not demanding factories. They wanted office buildings and they wanted shops and they wanted houses, but no one asked for factories. And so I just never built any. And I could keep importing all the goods that I wanted, but it was importing them like silently and invisibly. There was no cost to me for importing all this stuff. It was just a city with no pollution and with no... Uh, with no grimy industrial spots and no, uh, none of those big eyesores that we associate with the stuff. Now, I recognize that I kind of sound like a grumpy old man. Like the video games were so much better when I was back when I was a kid. But <laughs> I, I'm glad that video games are now getting that treatment. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I and I, I retain the right to sound like a grumpy old man about a whole wide variety of things. But I gotta think that it. One of the good things that these kind of simulators do is that they teach us about intersectionality and they teach us about the ways in which we are dependent on a, a whole broad network and array of things that aren't necessarily immediately visible to us. One of the things I liked about SimCity was that it made those invisible places visible. So because it was an isolated city and you didn't have imports and exports that you had to have everything there and you had to be able to see and you had to reckon with the sourcing you had to reckon with where your food came from and where your goods came from. And now the game I'm playing does not force you to reckon with that. It, re it replicates what seems to me a kind of external modern reality where we don't have to be aware of the sourcing of our stuff because it comes invisibly. And so I'm, I'm lamenting a little bit of that today and um, standing on my grumpiness. So that's what I've got, Adam. That's it. Matt, you can... Uh, go find the nearest factory and give it a hug if you want. I, I live in the middle of nowhere, Adam. It would be a long trip. I don't have that kind of time today. <laughs> All right. So that about wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus. But we're not quite done yet. Like I said at the top of the show, next week, our guest will be Eric Barreto. We've asked Eric to let us in on what movie he has chosen for us. And by the power of movie magic, he is now here to let us know his choice. Hey, Adam and Matt. This is Eric Barreto, currently in St. Paul, Minnesota. I love big summer action movies, so was tempted to choose the latest Fast and the Furious movie, but I think they'll have to wait until another time. Uh, instead, I want to think about a movie about the end of the world as we know it, a movie that is frenetic in its vision, a movie that has women at the forefront of what it means to be a hero in a world gone mad. So this week, I want us all to watch Mad Max Fury Road. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to have Eric on the show, and I'm super excited to go revisit Mad Max. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. It's a movie we've talked about, but never on the show, and I'm glad to get some of those thoughts out again and to go revisit uh, George Miller's crazy world. Right. I mean, talk about a movie that's a video game. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, thanks for listening, folks, and don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and find us on iTunes. If you have questions about the show and if you want to tell us how we got it all wrong or if you want to praise our great insight, come to our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Or leave us a review on iTunes. They are invaluable to us in helping other folks find the show. If you like it, tell a friend, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.